Word of prayer, we'll get started. Who prayed for the first class tonight? Brother Kiefer did. Brother Peter, why don't you go and pray for us? Amen. So we're going to continue our study on the church. Before we do, I just wanted to say something, and I know we probably know this, but it's good to be reminded of this, and I, and I firmly believe this, but we need to always make sure the Bible is our final authority. Amen. Even as I'm up here teaching, I am not the final authority. Amen. I am not infallible, okay? And same with the other uh, folks teaching. Uh, listen, the Bible is final authority. Obviously, in, in all classes, especially this one, there's a lot of history. History is not infallible either. Do you understand? And, and some of it we even determine on, determined by sources and all like that. And I try to say that as much as I can. But when you're in church, when you're in class, when you're in a Bible study or something, you need to just always make sure the Bible is our final authority. That's what the final authority of our church is. It's not my opinion. If I'm wrong, I need the Bible to correct me. Same with you. And just because I say something or another teacher says something or you say something, that doesn't make it right. So everything now, saying that, I try to base everything on the Bible. You understand? And, uh, but I just want to throw that out there, and especially you young people. Don't just say, well, so-and-so said this. It's got to be the truth. No. If the Bible teaches it or says it, it's the truth. And, uh, and now, along that line, there are things in the Bible that are not clearly outlined. And it leaves much debate. And uh, some of the things don't matter as much as other things. And you just need to be careful you don't get bogged down with doubtful disputations in life. This is, I'm a practical guy if you haven't figured that out. This is, this is how I sum up life. The world generally is lost and going to hell. The Lord's coming back soon. And we have one opportunity to live a life that's pleasing to God and fulfill the Great Commission. And when we get bogged down with, you know, you name it, you know, whatever we want to talk about that doesn't really matter, I'm not saying you shouldn't believe, have a belief, but there's probably more pressing things. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I just wanted to say that and make sure we understand our Bible is our final authority. So back on the uh, study of the church, we're under the, or we're looking at the period of the church at Pergamos. Um, that runs roughly from 325 to 500 A.D., and I believe we ended on page 22. That's where I had it. Is that where everybody is, page 22? I didn't mark it till the next day when I got home, and it's amazing how it all looks the same the next day. But I, I believe I'm down there by the capital letter D, the Church and the Empire. Do we all have that? So that's where I'm going to pick up. I wanted to finish this last week, didn't get to, but we're, I'll try to get through this now. I will not be here the next two uh, Monday nights. Do not cheer, please. Do not even pump your fist. Wait till I'm not here so you don't hurt my feelings. No, but do you all understand the times of the next two weeks, I'm sure? Next week starts at what time? The 20th. At 6? He is teaching next week now. I don't think he, I don't think he is. I'm going to confirm that. That's the 20th. He's flying home. I think he gets in at 5-something at night for something. Unless he changed the flight. I'll talk to him. (laughs) 
we'll, we'll clarify this on Wednesday night. I really don't think he's teaching the 20th unless something changed. The 27th would be the night he teaches for two hours. So, but I'll double check. I believe the 20th, Brother Dan teaches from seven to nine. He's going to teach two hours. We will give you a break. The 27th, Dad will teach for two hours and then Brother Dan because that way he'll pick up his extra hour he missed. I'll confirm it. Um, he even asked me, he, he was confused. He asked me yesterday about it again, but I think he might have got confused about it. So, okay, not to confuse you, but on we go. Tonight, I'm here right now, seven to eight. The church and the empire. Uh, under that, number one, you have the imperial edict of 311 and 313 A.D., um, in 311, Christians were granted limited toleration, which was a, a big deal for them. In 3B, we see in 313, the two emperors, those two guys there, the Senius and Constantine, declared, we grant to the Christians and to all others full liberty of following that religion which each may choose. These were called the Magna Charter of Christianity. If you look back at history. Number two, we see Constantine's approach. Uh, he saw Christian principles could not be made a matter of law. In other words, you cannot legislate Christianity. So he saw Christian principles could not be made a matter of law. Christianity must begin from within, a matter of the heart. As we look at Constantine, Constantine did some positive things, but overall he was not, he was not a, a great, he was not a great blessing to Christianity, although at the time it appeared like he did many, and he did many positive things. Number two, you have Constantine's, oh no, we looked at approach, uh, small Roman numeral two, he clearly favored the Christian religions, and that is seen by the edicts that he put forth favoring them. He clearly favored the Christian religions. So he realized that it must begin from the heart and he favored Christian religions. And that puts us on to page number 23. After he became sole emperor, he issued a general exhortation to his subjects to embrace Christianity. Now, remember, when he would say Christianity, he wasn't just talking about being a born-again Christian. It's a general term would have been used. Um, B, he avoided alienation of the pagan majority by performing the duties of Pontifex Maximus. All, we would call that high priest for the official pagan religion. So I think we looked at this last week. He tried to mix pagan traditions into the religious uh, uh, services as well. See, we have he effected a great transformation in history. He, before his death, the Roman Empire had been largely freed from the old pagan religion. D, he formally adopted Christianity as the religion of the state. And, and under D, these are all 1 through 11 under D. Privileges were given to the church. These were some of the benefits of him adopting Christianity as religion of the state. 
privileges were given to the church. He exempted the Christian clergy from military and municipal duties and their properties free from taxation. And that was 313. That became a law. And even us today, for now at least, churches have tax exemption. Although that probably won't be for long. Number three, he abolished various customs and ordinances that were offensive to Christianity. He required civil observance of Sunday, of the Lord's Day. That's number four. He required civil observance of Sunday. In other words, things were closed down. You study the history of America, one one of many contributing factors to the demise of America was the desecration of the Lord's Day. He contributed liberally to the building of churches. Remember, because of persecution, almost all churches, at least born-again Christians, were held in homes. Uh, Six, he circulated the scriptures. They were allowed to be given out. Number seven, he supported the clergy. Number eight, he gave the Catholic churches the privilege of asylum. Criminals and such could find safety in a Catholic church. Maybe that's why all them priests are Catholics, right? Number nine, he preferred Christians to fill chief offices in government. Why? Because he saw how it affected their lives. He surrounded himself with Christian counselors. He even gave his sons a Christian education. Number 11, he gave his sons a Christian education. E, we see the elevation of Christianity made Constantine the first representative of a Christian theocracy. And that would be a policy or a government which involved these three things. The assumption that all subjects are Christians, just as the Old Testament theocracy assumed all subjects of that government were Israelites. That doesn't mean all subjects were Christians. It was the assumption. Number two, a close connection between civil and religious rights. And so number two is a close connection between civil and religious rights. And then number three, a belief that the church and state as divine institutions were the two arms of one and the same divine government on earth. In other words, basically it's a belief that God instituted the church and government as well. Then we have F. Everybody good so far? Anybody need anything before we go farther? Okay, very good. F. Constantine continued as supreme pontiff of religious affairs of state. He called himself the bishop of all bishops. Listen, it's never a good thing when the state 
becomes the authority for religion. You might sit there and think, yeah, but if they're Christian, here's the problem. Eventually, they're corrupted. And that's what our forefathers saw, the separation of church and state. That was really that there would be no state religion or state church because they saw how mankind was corrupt. Gee, he tried in every way to strengthen and unify the church. In 330 A.D., he transferred the seat of government which had been in Rome to Byzantium, mainly because of his dislike of heathenism still prevailing in Rome. This selection of a new location profoundly affected the course of history. One of the results of this was a divided empire and a divided church. That's number two. A result was a divided empire and a divided church. Number three, there, in Byzantium, uh, he built magnificent churches. He elevated the Bishop of Constantinople, which was the capital city as well, to a position equal to that of the Bishop of Rome. Again, you see some of the evil of this man, even as he's shown favoritism to Christianity generally. Ah, you have subsequent leadership. All succeeding emperors after Constantine, with the exception of Julian the Apostate in 361 and 363, placed themselves on the side of Christianity. Again, that term used very loosely, uh, but this is more from a history point of view right now. Number three, the principal doctrinal and theological controversies of this time. Uh, a few of them here, the deity of the Holy Spirit was questioned Many, many controversies about the Holy Spirit being the third part of the Trinity. I, I should say the third person. The Holy Spirit is not a thing. He is a person. And that was a great controversy here. And then the practical questions such as how is a man saved? Obviously, faith versus works. What is the church? I mean... Even as you know the Catholic Church versus what we were calling independent uh, uh, scriptural church. I mean, the difference is there. Who are the true ministers? You had those who were pastors and elders, and then you had priests and popes. What are the sacraments? These were some of the controversies. Another one was Christ was neither true God nor true man, but halfway between God and man, and that he had no soul. The Bible says, speaking of the Lord, that will not leave his soul in hell. Infant baptism was another great controversy. That's D. Infant baptism. Obviously, they believed in the sprinkling of babies to wash away their sins. I guess until they could reach the age of confirmation. <laughs> Number four, you have the theory of papal power. You had the Bishop of Rome. A, this is the Bishop of Rome. And the Patriarch of Constantinople became leading rivals for church supremacy. B, after Western Empire was destroyed in 476, the Emperor of Constantinople became the sole emperor of the world. 
of the civilized world at the time is what that should probably read. This added prestige, and he assumed the title of Bishop of Bishops, which was what Constantine had given himself at first. So if you see here, it's really, they're really vying for power, supreme authority of the church. Now, page number 24, a secular ruler became nominal head of the church. That was the result. That was the result of Constantine's policies. Number five, you have the worship, life, and discipline of this time. The large number of unconverted worldly persons who made a profession of faith exercised a bad influence. Remember, they tried to appease the pagans. They tried to legislate Christianity, but so of course you get a lot of false professions. B, you had many and nominal Christians, even though I understand that's not, you can't be a nominal Christ-like person, but they sought compensation or satisfaction for their heathen beliefs. So they wanted, they, they, they proclaimed Christianity, be held on to uh, their past life of, or their, their heathen or pagan beliefs. Many of them probably not even saved. Number six, the influence of paganism on Christianity. And these are some of the influences. A, the worship of angels, which angels are not to be worshipped. B, you had the doctrine of saints as heavenly beings who who shared in the omnipotence and omniscience of God. And if you see, I mean, even some of these Catholic churches, their names, St. Thomas or St. Peter. Uh, See, you have martyrs and relics. They claim to possess the actual cross of Christ, the actual cross that he died on, the mother of, uh, I forget, I read it. The mother of somebody claimed to have had it and passed it down. I didn't write that in here. Garments and bones of martyrs became uh, relics that they would worship. You know, they claimed to have the cloak of John the Baptist and all this of Peter and as they went down through the ages. And the Lord is against that. It's right in the Ten Commandments. The Lord is against that stuff. D, you had the rise of Mary worship. As the mother of God... That she remained a worship. I think that is a typo. How many of y'all think that's a typo? That she remained a virgin. I don't know if I can blame my computer on that one. This is what they claim. This is why they worshipped her. She was a mother of God. She remained a virgin, a perpetual virgin. She was not a sinner. She was the heavenly queen. And they prayed to her. Mary was a sinner. She said my, she talking she, in her prayers about, she mentioned her Savior. She had several children after the Lord. Uh, image worship, e-image worship. There was lighting of candles before images, kissing them reverently, bowing before them, laying prostrate before them, and burning of incense to these images. F, you have pilgrimages. They take a pilgrim 
pilgrimage to a sacred place. And there was a righteousness of works associated with such trips. G, you had development of seven sacraments. You had the baptism, but there was many ceremonies added to the rite of baptism, such as infant baptism, baptism at confirmation, so forth and so on. You had the Lord's Supper, but they began regarded as sacrifice and worship towards God. And it led to a place where they believed they were actually eating the body of Christ. They sacrificed him anew over and over a penance, extreme unction, ordination, marriage, and confirmation. So that's baptism, Lord's Supper, penance, extreme unction, ordination, marriage, and confirmation. Um, you had ceremonies in different forms of worship and rites. You had worship, number one, worship developed. A wealth of forms and ceremonial pomp became more about the the organization and and the procedure of it than the actual worship. Whole services centered around the celebration of the Eucharist. Preaching became formal and rhetorical. Very, and even in some places, disappeared. Festivals were instituted to honor Mary, angels, martyrs, and saints. Confessional was gradually recognized as part of the church system. And then number seven, the, the monastic, the life of monasteries increased. And that brings us to E, the summary of the Pergamos period. Are we all good? Everybody good up to this point? Okay. Just a quick summary, seven things. Number one, many deteriorating influences were operating within the church. Many deteriorating influences were operating within the church. Number two, the decrease of persecution caused a decrease in Christian zeal and enthusiasm. And it's sad, but is that not how it is? One of the reasons of the Laodicean age being lukewarm is because we're increased with goods. If the Lord allowed us to suddenly be decreased with goods and be uncomfortable, you would see Christians very serious about the things of God who had never been before. But it's just, it's the flesh, man. The flesh winds down. Number three, Christianity became a mass movement, but many joined without real spiritual change. That's why you got to be careful by getting caught up in movements. Number four, riches and prosperity attracted worldly-minded men to church offices. And coveting wealth became a common sin among the clergy. And I just use that term very loosely, but among those in positions of authority in the church. Especially the wrong kind. Number five, there were many doctrinal doctrinal disputes, many controversies. Number six, there was a double standard for morals, one for clergy, another for the laity. 
And number seven, the church is about and is entering the dark ages. Number seven, church about to enter the dark ages. That takes us to the next church age. Page 25, the church at Thyatira. Top of page 25, number seven. This age is roughly 500 to 1000 A.D. Some, some will try to... Will, will, I've, I've seen it extend anywhere up to 1500 A.D., but the, the passage is Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And really, if you wanted to write a theme for this, this would be the paganized church. What you see in this church period is the, is the not really the rise anymore, but the well-embedded, the Roman Catholic system is in control of this time. So you think about it, in less than 500 years, that wicked, that wicked religious system has come to power. A, you have the historical background, just a few things. It was located near Pergamos. It was a commercial city. It was an idolatrous city. So number two, it was a commercial city. It was an idolatrous idolatrous city. Number four, we're going to see one of the things the Lord had against it was Jezebel. The works and deeds of a woman named Jezebel. And for an Old Testament reference, you could write down 1 Kings chapter 16. Verses 19 through 33. 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 19 through 33. You can read that sometime. I was just looking. I think I made a typo there. Yes. So under Jezebel, do you have a? Uh, yes, that her she's a daughter. The name there is wrong. I, it came out ethical. It's it's E T H and then Baal. E T H B A A L. Eth Baal. She was the daughter of Eth Baal, who was the king of Tyre and Sidon. Interesting studying the word of God on Tyre and Sidon. Very interesting. Obviously, she was the wife of Ahab. C, she was an idolater, obviously. So her, her, her father, who was the king of Tyre and Sidon, his name was Ethbaal, and you know Israel, Ahab, through the, the influence of Jezebel, got Israel to worship Baal. So his name would lend credence that he... he that he had been named or had placed himself as some kind of a deity. If you study Tyre and Sidon, it's an, it's, a, it's an amazing study, the wickedness and the idolatry. So she was the wife of Ahab. She was an idolater. She convinced Ahab to use his power to establish the worship of idols. She wanted to kill the prophets of God. She's just a wonderful woman. Her daughter, who was Athaliah, married Jehoram. 
Tough question. Anybody know whose son Jehoram was? Go ahead, Ben. He was. Do you know his dad's name? Go ahead, Daniel. Yes, it was. Very good. Jehoshaphat. I say, we looked at this in teen Sunday school class a couple weeks ago, so that's why I was wondering if any of you had been awake back then. Jehoshaphat made affinity with who? Ahab. And God told him, the prophet came and said, you shouldn't do it. And then he, a second time, made affinity with the king of Egypt. Well, he might have got away with being a friend of Ahab, but his son ends up marrying Ahab's daughter. There was a great lesson there in evil communication. So Jezebel and Ahab's daughter, Athaliah, married Jehoram, king of Judea, and helped introduce idol worship into Judah. If you study the kings of Judah, it's under Jehoram, the first time Judah is known to worship false idols. Now, they've gotten away from God before, but Judah was mostly good kings. So it was the influence of that wicked woman, Jezebel. Number five, Jezebel is a picture of a woman that brings confusion to God's people. Okay, great study in the Bible on Jezebel. We're not going to go real deep into it. But number six, you have the Church of Rome. The papal church was prominent during this time of this time period. And that's what God's referring to in Revelation. He talks about Jezebel. She was a prophetess. Number seven. So number six, the church of Rome was prominent during this time. And number seven, Jezebel was a prophetess there in Revelation chapter number two. Listen, I don't believe in prophetesses today, okay? I don't believe that. It's a whole nother study, but the Bible mentions Corinthians about the women. About the women. It, 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 what mentioned about her keeping silent in the church, I believe that's in a teaching or authoritative role. It talks about her um, not usurping authority. A woman needs to be in the right place. Her place is not in leadership in the church. It's not in leadership in the home. And it's not in leadership in society. Amen. And you look in, in many places, in those three areas, she's out of place. But anyways, she assumed... So a prophetess is an assumed rule or position. So this is talking about the Jezebel reference in Revelation 2. This is, there's, a, there's a typology here. There's symbolism here. What did she desire to do? To teach or preach? That's what a prophetess did. C. So B is she, she desired to teach and preach. Okay. C. One of the types here is the Roman Catholic system having turned into a Jezebel. Insist on what the church says instead of what the Bible says or teaches. So just as Jezebel would have usurped her place. Right? Usurped an authority. The Roman Catholic Church, they took the authority away from the Word of God and made it what? The church. You don't talk to a Catholic and they say, well, I believe this because the Bible says this. They believe it because the church says that. That's one of of what God's trying to to show here in Revelation chapter 2. This system, this is D, this system sets up its claim that the teaching of the church is superior to the Word of God. And listen, we don't, 
I don't agree with that. The church, and, and really it's talking about the Roman Catholic Church, but even the Baptist Church teaching is not superior to the Word of God. We, we say we believe this, and I hope we live it, but the, the Word of God is our final authority in what all matters of faith and practice. If what you say you believe and what you practice, you cannot back up the Word of God, then you, you have the wrong final authority. So I know, I know so many churches that they say that, but many times we don't live that in everything. So um, we're down to E, uh, referred to. This was the church became referred to, the Catholic church referred to as the Holy Mother Church. I mean, if that doesn't just sound like blasphemy, I don't know what does. But the truth is, in F, Christ is the head of the church, and he's the one, that's supposed to be from, not form, from whom all truth is. Not the church, especially not the Holy Mother Church. Now, listen, in the Word of God, the church is likened to what? The bride of Christ. Okay? The bride is, is it female or male? Female, right? We still believe that, right? Okay. Well, there's a significance there. The church is in submission, subjection to Christ. But the Roman Catholic system, they, they did not like that. And that's what this is showing here. Okay. Um, to G, during the time of persecutions, like the time of Jezebel, when Jezebel, back in the Old Testament, persecuted, there was persecutions, there was crusades and inquis the Inquisition. It was aimed at the expansion of its power and influence. And that's the church, the Roman Catholic Church. Number eight, you see her fornication was one of the things that God uh, had a problem with in Revelation chapter two. Her fornication. She joined herself to the world. What we see in this age, the church has lost its chastity and became a harlot. The Roman Catholic Church. And again, I'm trying not to do a study on the Roman Catholic Church, but when you study church history, it's all, all through there. They're, they're the biggest enemy on this earth to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ, and to the church and Christianity, actually, is what I'm trying to say. Probably, folks, and the Roman Catholic Church has damned more people to hell since the crucifixion than, than drugs or liquor or atheism or, or anything. Very wicked. And, and, and we're not studying Revelation, but you see them, see it depicted there in Revelation. Drunken with the blood of saints. All right, see. The deprived and scandalous living of its popes and priests through the years. That's all under her fornication. I mean, you understand... I'm not saying every last one, but a lot of these popes and priests, they're, they're wicked men. They're fornicators. They're drunks. Many of them are pedophiles. Now, you know some of this came out just recently, right? How much of the tip of the iceberg do you think came out to the public? Okay. I, listen, studying some of this, I've read some stuff that would make the hair. I'm talking about mass burial grounds of children and just all kinds of wickedness and abominations that's come from that seat of power 
of the Roman Catholic Church and the Pope and the priests, they are wicked, 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 wicked people. The nuns are just as wicked. I'm talking incestuous relationships, illegitimate children born, ungodly things done with them. I'm saying, guys, if you study the history of it, I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying they're wicked. They are wicked. And what, what came out recently is just barely a, it's a pinhead of the glacier of what, that, of what they're guilty of. And you say, do you think the Roman Catholic Church still has power today? Absolutely. They have a lot of power. Okay, I'm getting off there. Do we have any Catholics in here? Say we don't have any Catholics in here. It's all for naught. Man. Okay, where, where am I here? Number nine, her idolatry. Number nine, her idolatry. Now listen, I don't hate Catholics. They need to be saved. Amen. They are blinded and deceived by false religion. Amen. And I'll just say this since we're on the thing. I mean, my dad was a former Catholic. Dan Clare was a former Catholic. You were a Muslim, Brian. Come on, we all know that. <laughs> but I'll tell you this. If a, cat, if a Catholic truly gets born again, they usually make good church members. In, in many ways, they've, been, they've got like the structure and they're just, they're deceived by false religion. But anyways, they, so they need the gospel. I don't hate, I don't want you to think I hate them. They're just wrong. And the leadership of them is wicked. Okay, her idolatry. A, the consequence of fornication is idol worship. One of the consequences, I should say. It's interesting, I, 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 one of the sources I read, they went up into some of this, they even went into the Hindu religion, how fornication and idolatry are linked together. It's an interesting, it's just interesting how that happens. Uh, Jezebel introduced foreign gods and well represents the Catholic Church, obviously. The Catholic Church introduced images, pictures, and relics into the church for the purpose to be worshipped. I heard a man preach once. I was, I was a teenager and he preached. He came to our church and he preached that if you had any pictures on your walls in your house, you were committing idolatry. Now I understand where he came from. He came from that because the Roman Catholics were the one who introduced that into the church and it was for worship. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not so sure you're not allowed to have a picture on your wall. You shouldn't be bowing down to it and worshiping it, that's for sure. But that, that's why someone would, would say something like that. A D, Jesus was no longer called the Son of God, but the Son of Mary. Again, in the Catholic Church as we're talking. What a, what, yeah, what a difference. It produced the worship of a, a female deity. You realize up, up to this time and even up to now obviously but Christianity has was is and will only be the only religion without a female goddess of some sort all other nations had one there was sacrifice of the mass speaking of her idolatry idolatry of the church the idolatrous priest and sacramental the system of sacrament sacramental sounds like I'm saying somebody from sacramento California. 
10, you have the warning. What was the warning that God gave? He gave a space to repent. But she repented not. And so what you're going to have in the next several hundred years of history is you're going to have some judgment for her not repenting. The church as a whole not repenting. And so we go to the age. And number one is the medieval period. Under that, you have medieval Christianity was limited almost entirely to the West of civilization at the time. World history shifted to the West. During this time, civilization spread to Italy, Spain, Great Britain, and Germany. Should tell charity, she should have been here tonight. Germany was mentioned. Amen. <laughs> Number two, destructive invasions ushered in the medieval period. And that puts us on to page number 26. Let me just come down here to a good spot to start. For two centuries, the Teutonic tribes invaded Europe. This was looked upon as a great catastrophe and judgment to civilized society. See, there was disorder and destruction in Western Europe. Disorder and destruction in Western Europe. D, only the church could exert any good influence on the invaders. The Christian church. Number two, we have the effects of Mohammedism. And that word is used somewhere down, if you don't know how to spell it, it's used down at number F, I think. A great rise of what we would call Islam today. In the 7th century, a great wave, and this is a wave of Mohammedism, started in Arabia, swept rapidly over Syria, Palestine, Egypt, and Persia, destroying much in its path. Twice, they laid siege, and those, I gave you the years there, 669, to 676 in our time in 717. In in 707 AD, they conquered North Africa. At 707, they conquered North Africa. In 711, they conquered Spain. That is D. 711, they conquered Spain. E, you had 732, great battle of the Tours, Charles Martel. Let me know where he was from. Anybody read this history? Tim, you're into history, right? Yes. Yes, very good. He finally defeated the Mohammedans and stopped their advance into Western Europe. Um, F, Mohammedism had, should be had an effect on Greek culture at the time. G, Mohammedism had an effect on the church. In parentheses, I have the holy war. They hindered the advancement of the church, and the life of the church seemed to stagnate. And then we'll end with this, the effect on Europe. You had an era of transition and reconstruction. We'll stop right there. We'll pick up on number three. It'll be a few weeks before we get there, but... We are going to finish this this year. 
I, I will actually miss a week in April as well. I think I have four weeks left, but a couple of these I'm going to go through and we will get done here. So, did Pastor give another homework assignment or not? He did. What was his homework assignment? Number four. So Brian has two chapters outlined. All right, well, I actually have a homework assignment for you all too. I will not teach for two weeks. It'll be three weeks from tonight when I'll be back. I will grade it. I'm going to give you two things. I'm going to give you the one, and the one at the end. What I want you to do is, and it doesn't, I'm not looking for elaborate, but I want you to outline one of the seven churches mentioned in Revelation. And I'm going to give you liberty. You can outline it as the local church that it was or as the period of time that it represented. Okay? So a lot of liberty there. I don't need like five pages. Just something, something simple, but more than like two lines. Okay? And it'll be something that I will grade. There'll be two things I give you that I'll grade this year. That's one, then we'll do something at the end. Any questions about that? Now you have three weeks, so don't forget. Okay. Anybody need anything? Any questions? Very good. Listen, I appreciate y'all coming, appreciate y'all's attention, and I hope that you're getting a blessing and learning some information that maybe one day you can use. Anyways, let's pray. Lord, I sure love you. I thank you for saving me. Lord, it is good to be saved. I thank you for a perfect book that you've given us. And uh, Lord, bless these folks that come out faithfully on Monday nights, Lord, to learn from your word. I pray you'd bless them. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we do learn, Lord, that we'd also grow in grace and Lord, draw closer to you. Help us, Lord, to live a life that would honor and please you. I pray bless Brother Dan now as he teaches. And we thank you for what you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.